0: Yo, what's up, uh, men All kinds of
1: video games on uh, Twitch lately. It's called the Distorted Poets Gaming Show. I'm your host for that game. If you guys want to see it, I do it at least once a day. Um, hopefully, um, you guys keep on sponsoring my ass. Dang, I'll be playing all day, all night. You know, all that money. Mm, it's good for me. Yum, yum. Meanwhile, you're on the brain-washed radio Hollywood! See the wood part has to be all long, you know, like a long
0: dong. You're on the brain. Significant cut above, which so elegantly describe the human condition, winding their way word by word, chapter by chapter, through a delicate web of beautiful storytelling, as to remain untouched by even time. Those are, by definition, the classics. When the synergy of truth, intelligence, and insightful description come together in a tale which moves one emotionally, inspires, and educates, those works. Are indeed classic. To be so in tune with one's literary powers as to create, often from imagination, a story full of emotion, tender at heart, and overflowing with some illumined truth from deep inside so that it can be universally recognized and relived by the eyewitness. That, too, is a classic. Here at Icon, we go far beyond the recommended reading list of the studious English language major to bring you what is the elemental soul of the art of the written word so that you may, in your own way and time, enter into the story laid out before you to be forever changed and just that much more enlightened. That, then, is the true power of classical literature, and our humble attempt at its presentation herein as an audiobook to remember. Welcome.
1: First Lecture, First Principles Do what thou wilt shall be the whole of the law. It is my will to explain the subject of yoga in clear language, without resort to jargon, or the enunciation of fantastic hypotheses, in order that this great science may be thoroughly understood as of universal importance. For like all great things, it is simple, but like all great things, it is masked by confused thinking, and only too often brought into contempt by the machinations of knavery. 1. There is more nonsense talked and written about yoga than about anything else in the world. Most of this nonsense, which is fostered by charlatans, is based upon the idea that there is something mysterious and oriental about it. There isn't. Do not look to me for obelisks and odalisks, rahat lukum, bulls or any other tinsel imagery of the yoga mongers. I am neat, but not gaudy. There is nothing mysterious or oriental about anything. As everybody knows who has spent a little time intelligently in the continents of Asia and Africa. I propose to invoke the most remote and elusive of all gods to throw clear light upon the subject, the light of common sense. Number two, all phenomena of which we are aware take place in our own minds and therefore the only thing we have to look at is the mind which is a more constant quantity over all the species of humanity than is generally supposed. What appears to be radical differences, irreconcilable by argument, are usually found to be due to the obstinacy of habit produced by generations of systematic sectarian training. 3. We must then begin the study of yoga by looking at the meaning of the word. It means union from the same Sanskrit root as the Greek word zokma, the Latin word yugum, and the English word yoke. When a dancing girl is dedicated to the service of a temple, there is a yoga of her relations to celebrate. Yoga, in short, may be translated tea fight, which doubtless accounts for the fact that all the students of yoga in England do nothing but gossip over endless libations of tea. 4. Yoga means union. In what sense are we to consider this? How is the word yoga to imply a system of religious training or a description of religious experience? You may note, incidentally, that the word religion is really identifiable with the word yoga. It means a binding together. 5. Yoga means union. What are the elements which are united, or to be united, when this word is used in its common sense of a practice widely spread in Hindustan, whose object is the emancipation of the individual who studies and practices it from the less pleasing features of his life spent on this planet? I say Hindustan because really I mean anywhere on earth, for research has shown that similar methods producing similar results are to be found in every country. The details vary but the general structure is the same, because all bodies, and so all minds, have identical forms. 6. Yoga means union. In the mind of a pious person, the inferiority complex which accounts for his piety compels him to interpret this emancipation as union with the gaseous vertebrate whom he has invented and called God. On the cloudy vapor of his fears, his imagination has thrown a vast, distorted shadow of himself, and he is dully terrified. And the more he cringes before it, the more the specter seems to stoop to crush him. People with these ideas will never get to anywhere but lunatic asylums and churches. It is because of this overwhelming miasma of fear that the whole subject of yoga has become obscure. A perfectly simple problem has been complicated by the most abject ethical and superstitious nonsense, yet all the time the truth is patent in the word itself. 7. Yoga means union. We may now consider what yoga really is. Let's go for a moment into the nature of consciousness with the tail of an eye on such sciences as mathematics, biology, and chemistry. In mathematics, the expression A plus B plus C is a triviality. Write A plus B plus C equals zero, and you obtain an equation from which the most glorious truths may be developed. In biology, the cell divides endlessly, but never becomes anything different. But if we unite cells of opposite qualities, male and female, we lay the foundation of a structure whose summit is unattainably fixed in the heavens of imagination. Similar facts occur in chemistry. The atom by itself has few constant qualities, none of them particularly significant. But as soon as an element combines with the object of its hunger, we get not only the ecstatic production of light, heat, and so forth, but a more complex structure having few or none of the qualities of its elements, but capable of further combination into complexities of astonishing sublimity. All of these combinations, these unions... yoga. 8. Yoga means union. How are we to apply the word to the phenomena of the mind? What is the first characteristic of everything in thought? How did it come to be a thought at all? Only by making a distinction between it and the rest of the world. The first proposition, the type of all propositions, is S is... There must be two things, different things, whose relation forms knowledge. Yoga is first of all the union of the subject and the object of consciousness, of the seer with the thing seen. None. Now, there's nothing strange or wonderful about all this. The study of the principles of yoga is very useful to the average man, if only to make him think about the nature of the world as he supposes that he knows it. Let us consider a piece of cheese. We say that this has certain qualities, shapes, structures, colors, solidity, weight, taste, smell, consistency, and the rest. But investigation has shown that this is all illusory. Where are these qualities? Not in the cheese, for different observers give quite different accounts of it. Not in ourselves, for we do not perceive them in the absence of the cheese. All material things... All impressions are phantoms. In reality, the cheese is nothing but a series of electric charges. Even the most fundamental quality of all, mass, has been found not to exist. The same is true of the matter in our brains, which is partly responsible for these perceptions. What then are these qualities of which we are all so sure? They would not exist without our brains, they would not exist without the cheese. They are the results of the union, that is, of the yoga, of the seer and the seen, of subject and object, in consciousness, as the philosophical phrase goes. They have no material existence. They are only names given to the ecstatic results of this particular form of yoga. 10. I think that nothing can be more helpful to the student of yoga than to get the above proposition firmly established in his subconscious mind. About nine-tenths of the trouble in understanding the subject is all of this ballyhoo about yoga being mysterious and oriental. The principles of yoga and the spiritual results of yoga are demonstrated in every conscious and unconscious happening. This is that which is written in the Book of the Law. Love is the law, love under will. For love is the instinct to unite and the act of uniting. But this cannot be done indiscriminately. It must be done under will, that is, in accordance with the nature of the particular units concerned. Hydrogen has no love for hydrogen. It is not the nature, or the true will, of hydrogen to seek to unite with a molecule of its own kind. Add hydrogen to hydrogen, nothing happens to its quality. It is only its quantity that changes. It rather seeks to enlarge its experience of its possibilities by union with atoms of opposite character, such as oxygen. With this, it combines, with an explosion of light, heat, and sound, to form water. The result is entirely different from either of the component elements, and has another kind of true will, such as to unite, with similar disengagement of light and heat, with potassium, while the resulting caustic potash has, in its turn, a totally new series of qualities with still another true will of its own, that is, to unite explosively with acids, and so on. 11. It may seem to some of you that these explanations have rather knocked the bottom out of yoga, that I have reduced it to the category of common things. That was my object. There is no sense in being frightened of yoga, awed by yoga, muddled and mystified by yoga, or enthusiastic over yoga. If we are to make any progress in its study, we need clear heads and the impersonal scientific attitude. It is especially important not to bedevil ourselves with oriental jargon. We may have use for a few Sanskrit words, but that's only because they have no English equivalents, and any attempt to translate them burdens us with the connotation of the existing English words which we employ. However, these words are very few and, if the definitions which I propose to give you are carefully studied, they should present no difficulty. 12. Having now understood that yoga is the essence of all phenomena whatsoever, we may ask what is the special meaning of the word in respect to our proposed investigation, since the process and the results are familiar to every one of us. So familiar indeed, that there is actually nothing else at all of which we have any knowledge. Is knowledge. What is it we are going to study, and why should we study it? 13. The answer is very simple. All this yoga that we know and practice, this yoga that produced these ecstatic results that we call phenomena, include among its spiritual emanations a good deal of unpleasantness. The more we study this universe produced by our yoga, the more we collect and synthesize our experience the nearer we get to a perception of what the Buddha declared to be characteristic of all component things. Sorrow, change, and the absence of any permanent principle. We constantly approach his enunciation of the first two noble truths, as he called them. Everything is sorrow, and the cause of sorrow is desire. By the word desire, he meant exactly what is meant by love in the book of the law which I quoted a few moments ago. Desire is the need of every unit to extend its experience by combining with its opposite. It is easy enough to construct the whole series of arguments which led up to the first noble truth. Every operation of love is the satisfaction of a bitter hunger, but the appetite only grows fiercer by satisfaction, so that we can say with the preacher, he that increaseth knowledge increaseth sorrow. The root of all this sorrow is in the sense of insufficiency, the need to unite, to lose oneself in the beloved object. This is the manifest proof of this fact, and it's clear also that the satisfaction produces only a temporary relief because the process expands indefinitely. The thirst increases with the drinking. The only complete satisfaction conceivable would be the yoga of the atom with the entire universe. This fact is easily perceived and has been constantly expressed in the mystical philosophies of the West. The only goal is union with God. Of course, we only use the word God because we have been brought up in superstition, and the higher philosophies both in the East and the West have preferred to speak of union with the All or with the Absolute. More superstitions. 15. Very well then. There's no difficulty at all since every thought in our being, every cell in our bodies, every electron and proton of our atoms is nothing but yoga and the result of yoga. All we have to do to obtain emancipation, satisfaction, everything we want, is to perform this universal and inevitable operation upon the Absolute itself. Some of the more sophisticated members of my audience may possibly be thinking that there is a catch in it somewhere they're perfectly right. 16. The snag is simply this. Every element of which we are composed is indeed constantly occupied in the satisfaction of its particular needs by its own particular yoga. But for that very reason, it is completely obsessed by its own function, which it must naturally consider as the be-all and end-all of its existence. For instance, if you take a glass tube, open at both ends, and put it over a bee on the window pane, it will continue beating against the window to the point of exhaustion and death, instead of escaping through the tube. We must not confuse the necessary automatic functioning of any of our elements with the true will, which is the proper orbit of any star. A human being only acts as a unit at all because of countless generations of training. Evolutionary processes have set up a higher order of yogic action by which we have managed to subordinate what we consider particular interests to what we consider the general welfare. We are communities, and our well-being depends upon the wisdom of our councils, and the discipline with which their decisions are enforced. The more complicated we are, the higher we are in the scale of evolution, the more complex and difficult is the task of legislation and maintaining order. 17 In highly civilized communities like our own you can laugh louder now uh, the individual is constantly being attacked by conflicting interests and necessities his individuality is constantly being assailed by the impact of other people and in a very large number of cases he is unable to stand up to the strain schizophrenia which is a lovely word may or may not be found in your dictionary it is an exceedingly common complaint It means the splitting up of the mind. In extreme cases, we get the phenomena of multiple personality. Jekyll and Hyde, or more so. At the best, when a man says I, he refers only to a transitory phenomenon. His I changes as he utters the word. But philosophy apart, it is rarer and rarer to find a man with a mind of his own and a will of his own, even in this modified sense. Eighteen. I want you, therefore, to see the nature of the obstacles to union with the Absolute. For one thing, the yoga which we constantly practice has not invariable results. There is a question of attention, of investigation, of reflection. I propose to deal in a future instruction with the modifications of our perception thus caused, for they are of great importance to our science of yoga. For example, the case of the two men lost in a thick wood at night. One says to the other, that dog barking is not a grasshopper, it is the creaking of a cart, or again, he thought he saw a banker's clerk descending from a bus, he looked again and saw it was a hippopotamus. Everyone who has done any scientific investigation knows painfully how every observation must be corrected again and again. The need of yoga is so bitter that it blinds us. We are constantly tempted to see and hear what we want to see and hear. It is therefore incumbent upon us, if we wish to make the universal and final yoga with the absolute, to master every element of our being, to protect it against all civil and external war, to intensify every faculty to the utmost, to train ourselves in knowledge and power to the utmost, so that at the proper moment we may be in perfect condition to fling ourselves up into the furnace of ecstasy which flames from the abyss of annihilation
0: Dates of icon audiobooks is to introduce and in some cases reintroduce people of all generations to the inspirational classical spiritual literature of the ages. The following audiobook falls into that very select and important category. Here you will find ageless wisdom, timeless truisms, and unbounded inspiration. From the ancient Hindu texts, the Bhagavad Gita, to the voluminous Vedas, the teachings of great saints like Meher Baba, Paramahansa Yogananda, Bhaktivedanta Swami, Kahil Gibran, and Ramdas, to the humble parables of Jesus, the Prophet Muhammad, may peace be upon him, as well as avatars such as Sri Krishna, Rama, and the Buddha. Icon casts the net wide to include the greatest insights of the ever expanding spiritual universe. As an old incredible string band song goes, May the long-time sun shine upon you, all love surround you, and the pure light within you guide your way home. I'm Juggernaut Das. Welcome to the icon world of classical literature. Within the art of writing, there is a very special category reserved for what we generally agree to be stories and tomes which are a significant...
1: Second lecture, Yama. Stars and placental amniotes and ye inhabitants of 10,000 worlds. The conclusion of our researches last week was that the ultimate yoga which gives emancipation, which destroys the sense of separateness, which is the root of desire, is to be made by the concentration of every element of one's being and annihilating it by intimate combustion with the universe itself. I might here note in parenthesis that one of the difficulties in doing this is that all the elements of the yogi increase in every way exactly as he progresses, and by reason of that progress. However, it is no use crossing our bridges until we come to them, and we shall find that by laying down serious scientific principles based on universal experience, they will serve us faithfully through every stage of the journey. When I first undertook the investigation of yoga, I was fortunately equipped with a very good sound training in the fundamental principles of modern science. I saw immediately that if we were to put any common sense into the business, science is nothing but constructed common sense. The first thing to do was to make a comparative study of the different systems of mysticism. It was immediately apparent that the results all over the world were identical. They were masked by sectarian theories. The methods all over the world were identical. This was masked by religious prejudice and local custom, but in their quiddity, identical. This simple principle proves quite sufficient to disentangle the subject from the extraordinary complexities which have confused its expression. When it came to the point of preparing a simple analysis of the matter, the question arose: what terms shall we use? The mysticisms of Europe are hopelessly muddled. The theories have entirely overlaid the methods. The Chinese system is perhaps the most sublime and the most simple, but unless one is born Chinese, the symbols are really unclimbable. The Buddhist system is in some ways the most complete but it is also the most recondite. The words are excessive in length and difficult to commit to memory, and generally speaking, one cannot see the wood for the trees. But from the Indian system, overloaded though it is by accretions of every kind, it's comparatively easy to extract a method which is free from unnecessary and undesirable implications, and to make an interpretation of it intelligible to and acceptable by European minds. It is this system, and this interpretation of it, which I propose to put before you. The great classic of Sanskrit literature is the aphorisms of Patanjali. He is at least mercifully brief, and not more than 90 or 95% of what he writes can be dismissed as the ravings of a disordered mind. What remains is 24 karat gold. Now I proceed to bestow it. It is said that yoga has eight limbs. Why limbs, I do not know, but I have found it convenient to accept this classification, and we can cover the ground very satisfactorily by classing our remarks under these eight headings. These headings are 1. Yama 2. Niyama 3. Asana 4. Pranayama 5. Pratyahara 6. Dharana 7. Dhyana 8. Samadhi. Any attempt to translate these words will mire us in a hopeless quag of misunderstanding. What we can do is to deal with each one in turn, giving at the outset some sort of definition or description, which will enable us to get a fairly complete idea of what is meant. I shall accordingly begin with an account of Yama. Attend, perpend, Transcend. Yama is the easiest of the eight limbs of yoga to define and corresponds pretty closely to our word control. When I tell you that some have translated it morality, you will shrink appalled and aghast at this revelation of the brainless baseness of humanity. The word control is here not very different from the word inhibition as used by biologists. A primary cell, such as the amoeba, is in one sense completely free, in another completely passive. All parts of it are alike. Any part of its surface can ingest its food. If you cut it in half, the only result is that you have two perfect amoeba instead of one. How far is this condition removed in the evolutionary scale from trunk murders? Organisms developed by specializing their component structures have not achieved this so much by an acquisition of new powers as by a restriction of parts of the general powers. Thus, a Harley Street specialist is simply an ordinary doctor who says, I won't go out and attend to a sick person. I won't, I won't, I won't. Now, what is true of cells is true of all already potentially specialized organs. Muscular power is based upon the rigidity of bones and upon the refusal of joints to allow any movement in any but the appointed directions. The more solid the fulcrum, the more efficient the lever. The same remark applies to moral issues. These issues are in themselves perfectly simple, but they have been completely overlaid by the sinister activities of priests and lawyers. There is no question of right or wrong in any abstract sense about any of these problems. It's absurd to say that it is right for chlorine to combine enthusiastically with hydrogen and only in a very surly way with oxygen. It is not virtuous of a hydra to be a hermaphrodite, or contumacious on the part of an elbow not to move freely in all directions. Anybody who knows what his job is has only one duty, which is to get that job done. Anyone who possesses a function has only one duty to that function to arrange for its free fulfillment. Do what thou wilt shall be the whole of the law. We shall not be surprised, therefore, if we find that the perfectly simple term Yamaha, or control, has been bedeviled out of all sense by the mistaken and malignant ingenuity of the pious Hindu. He has interpreted the word control as meaning compliance with certain fixed prescriptions. There are quite a lot of prohibitions grouped under the heading of yama, which are perhaps quite necessary for the kind of people contemplated by the teacher, but they have been senselessly elevated into universal rules. Everyone is familiar with the prohibition of pork as an article of diet by Jews and Mohammedans. This has nothing to do with yama or abstract righteousness. It was due to the fact that pork in eastern countries was infected with trichina, which killed people who ate pork improperly cooked. It was no good telling the savages that fact. Anyway, they would only have broken the hygienic command when greed overcame them. The advice had to be made a universal rule and supported with the authority of a religious sanction. They had not the brains to believe in trichinosis, but they were afraid of Jehovah and of Jehan. Just so, under the grouping of Yama, we learn that the aspiring yogi must become fixed in the non-receiving of gifts, which means that if anyone offers you a cigarette or a drink of water, you must reject his insidious advances in most Victorian manner. It is such nonsense as this which brings the science of yoga into contempt, but it isn't nonsense if you consider the class of people for whom the injunctions were promulgated. As we will be shown later, preliminary to the concentration of the mind is the control of the mind, which means the calm of the mind. And the Hindu mind is so constituted that if you offer the man the most trifling object, the incident is a landmark in his life. It upsets him completely for years. In the East, an absolutely automatic and thoughtless act of kindness to a native is liable to attach him to you, body and soul, for the rest of his life. In other words, it's going to upset him, and as a badin yogi, he's got to refuse it. But even the refusal is going to upset him quite a lot, and therefore, he has to become fixed in his refusal. That is to say, he's got to erect, by means of habitual refusal, a psychological barrier so strong that he can really dismiss the temptation without a quiver, or a quaver, or even a demi semi quiver of thought. I'm sure you will see that an absolute rule is necessary to obtain this result. It's obviously impossible for him to try to draw the line between what he may receive and what he may not. He is merely involved in a Socratic dilemma, whereas if he goes to the other end of the line and accepts everything, his mind is equally upset by the burden of responsibility of dealing with the things he's accepted. However, all these considerations do not apply to the average European mind. If someone gives me 200,000 pounds sterling, I automatically fail to notice it. It's a normal circumstance of life. Test me. There are a great many other injunctions, all of which have to be examined independently in order to find whether they apply to yoga in general and to the particular advantage of any given student. We are to exclude especially all those considerations based on fantastic theories of the universe or on accidents of race or climate. For instance, in the time of the late Maharaja of Kashmir, Masir fishing was forbidden throughout this territory, because when a child, he had been leaning over the parapet of a bridge over the Shri Lam of Srinagar and inadvertently opened his mouth so that a Masir was able to swallow his soul. It would never have done for a Sahiba mleka to catch that Masir. This story is really typical of 90% of the precepts usually enumerated under the heading yama. The rest are, for the most part, based on local and climactic conditions, and they may or may not be applicable to your own case. And, on the other hand, there are all sorts of good rules which have never occurred to the teacher of yoga, because those teachers never conceived the condition in which many people live today. It never occurred to the Buddha or to Pantajali or Mansur al-Halaj to advise his pupils not to practice in a flat with a wireless set next door. The result of all this is that all of you who are worth your salt will be absolutely delighted when I tell you to scrap all the rules and discover your own. Sir Richard Burton said, He noblest lives and noblest dies, who makes and keeps his self-made laws. This is, of course, what every man of science has to do in every experiment. This is what constitutes an experiment. The other kind of man has only bad habits. When you explore a new country... You don't know what the conditions are going to be, and you've got to master those conditions by the methods of trial and error. We start to penetrate the stratosphere, and we have to modify our machines in all sorts of ways which were not altogether foreseen. I wish to thunder forth once more that no questions of right or wrong enter into our problems. But in the stratosphere, it is right for a man to be shut up in a pressure-resisting suit electrically heated with an oxygen supply, whereas it would be wrong for him to wear it if he were running the three miles in the summer sports in the Tenezd roof. This is the pit into which all the great religious teachers have hitherto fallen, and I'm sure you are all looking hungrily at me in hope of seeing me do likewise. But no, there is one principle which carries us through all conflicts concerning conduct, because it's perfectly rigid and perfectly elastic. Do what thou wilt shall be the whole of the law. So... It's not the least use to come and pester me about it. Perfect mastery of the violin in six easy lessons by correspondence. Should I have the heart to deny you? But Yama is different. Do what thou wilt shall be the whole of the law. That is Yama. Your object is to perform yoga. Your true will is to attain the consummation of marriage with the universe. And your ethical code must be constantly adapted precisely to the conditions of your experiment. Even when you have discovered what your code is, you will have to modify it as you progress. remold it nearer to the heart's desire. Just so, in a Himalayan expedition, your rule of daily life in the valleys of Sikkim or the upper Indus will have to be changed when you get to the glacier. But it is possible to indicate, in general terms expressed with the greatest caution, the sort of thing that is likely to be bad for you. Anything that weakens the body, that exhausts disturbs or inflames the mind is depreciable you are pretty sure to find as you progress that there are some conditions that cannot be eliminated at all in your particular circumstances and then you have to find a way of dealing with these so that they make minimum trouble and you will find that you cannot conquer the obstacle of yama you cannot dismiss it from your mind once and for all Conditions favorable for the beginner may become an intolerable nuisance to the adept, while, on the other hand, things which matter very little in the beginning become most serious obstacles later on. Another point is that quite unsuspected problems arise in the course of the training. The whole question of the subconscious mind can be dismissed almost as a joke by the average man as he goes about his daily business. It becomes a very real trouble when you discover that the tranquility of the mind is being disturbed by a type of thought whose existence had previously been unsuspected and whose source is unimaginable. Then again, there is no perfection of materials, there will always be errors and weaknesses, and the man who wins through is the man who manages to carry on with a defective engine. The actual strain of the work develops the defects, and it is a matter of great nicety of judgment to be able to deal with the changing conditions of life. It will be seen that the formula, do what thou wilt shall be the whole of the law, has nothing to do with do as you please. It's much more difficult to comply with the law of the Lema than to follow out slavishly a dead set of regulations. Almost the only point of emancipation in the sense of relief from a burden is just the difference between life and death. To obey a set of rules is to shift the whole responsibility of conduct onto some superannuated bodhisattva who would resent you bitterly if he could see you and take you off in no uncertain terms for being such a fool as to think that you could dodge the difficulties of research by the aid of a set of conventions which have little or nothing to do with the actual conditions. Formidable indeed are the obstacles we have created by the simple process of destroying our fetters. The analogy of the conquest of the air holds excellently well. The things that worry the pedestrian worry us not at all, but to control a new element of your yama must be that biological principle of adaptation to new conditions, adjustment of the faculties to those conditions, and consequent success in those conditions, which were enunciated in respect of planetary evolution by Herbert Spencer and now generalized to cover all modes of being by the law of thelema. But now, let me begin to unleash my indignation. My job, the establishment of the law of thelema, is a most discouraging job. It is the rarest thing to find anyone who has any ideas at all on the subject of liberty. Because the law of thelema is the law of liberty, everybody's particular hair stands on end like the quills of the fretful porcupine. They scream like an uprooted mandrake and flee in terror from the accursed spot because the exercise of liberty means that you have to think for yourself and the natural inertia of mankind wants religion and ethics ready-made. However ridiculous or shameful a theory or practices, they would rather comply than examine it. Sometimes it is hook-swinging or sati, sometimes consubstantiation or supra-lapsarianism. They do not mind what they are brought up in as long as they are well brought up. They do not want to be bothered about it. The old school tie wins through. They never suspect the meaning of the pattern on the tie, the broad arrow. You remember Dr. Alexandre Manette in A Tale of Two Cities? He had been in prison for many years in the Bastille, and to save himself from going mad had obtained permission to make shoes. When he was released, he disliked it. He had to be approached with the utmost precaution. He fell into agony of fear if his door was left unlocked. He cobbled away in a frenzy of anxiety, lest the shoes not be finished in time. The shoes that nobody wanted. Charles Dickens lived at a time in a country such that this state of mind appeared abnormal and even deplorable. But today it is characteristic of 95% of people in England. Subjects that were freely discussed under Queen Victoria are now absolutely taboo because everyone knows subconsciously that to touch them, however gently, is to risk precipitating the catastrophe of their dry rot. There are not going to be many yogis in England because there will not be more than a very few indeed who will have the courage to tackle even this first of the eight limbs of yoga, yama. I do not think that anything will save the country unless through war and revolution, when those who wish to survive will have to think and act for themselves according to their desperate needs and not by some rotten yardstick of convention. Why, even the skill of the workmen is almost decayed within a generation. Forty years ago, there were very few jobs that a man could not do with a jackknife and a woman with a hairpin. Today, you have to have a separate gadget for every trivial task. If you want to become yogis, you will have to get a move on. Lege Yudhikya Take. Second Lecture Yama Stars and placental amniotes and ye inhabitants of 10,000 worlds. The conclusion of our researches last week was that the ultimate yoga which gives emancipation, which destroys the sense of separateness, which is the root of desire is to be made by the concentration of every element of one's being and annihilating it by intimate combustion with the universe itself. I might here note in parenthesis that one of the difficulties in doing this is that all the elements of the yogi increase in every way exactly as he progresses, and by reason of that progress. However, it is no use crossing our bridges until we come to them, and we shall find that by laying down serious scientific principles based on universal experience, they will serve us faithfully through every stage of the journey. When I first undertook the investigation of yoga, I was fortunately equipped with a very good sound training in the fundamental principles of modern science. I saw immediately that if we were to put any common sense into the business, science is nothing but constructed common sense, the first thing to do was to make a comparative study of the different systems of mysticism. It was immediately apparent that the results all over the world were identical. They were masked by sectarian theories. The methods all over the world were identical. This was masked by religious prejudice and local custom, but in their quiddity, identical. This simple principle proves quite sufficient to disentangle the subject from the extraordinary complexities which have confused its expression. When it came to the point of preparing a simple analysis of the matter, the question arose. What terms shall we use? The mysticisms of Europe are hopelessly muddled. The theories have entirely overlaid the methods. The Chinese system is perhaps the most sublime and the most simple, but unless one is born Chinese, the symbols are really unclimbable. The Buddhist system is in some ways the most complete, but it is also the most recondite. The words are excessive in length and difficult to commit to memory. Third lecture, Niyama do what thou wilt, shall be the whole of the law. The subject of my third lecture is Niyama. Niyama? Hmm. The inadequacy of even the noblest attempts to translate these wretched Sanskrit words is now about to be delightfully demonstrated. The nearest I can get to the meaning of Niyama is virtue. God help us all. This means virtue in the original etymological sense of the word, the quality of manhood, that is, to all intents and purposes, the godhead. But since we are translating yama control, we find that uh, our two words have not all the same relationship to each other that the words have in the original Sanskrit. For the prefix ni in Sanskrit gives meaning of turning everything upside down and backward forwards. As you would say, hysteron proteron." at the same time producing the effect of a transcendental sublimity. I find that I can't even begin to think of a proper definition, although I know in my own mind perfectly well what the Hindus mean. If one soaks oneself in oriental thought for a sufficient number of years, one gets a spiritual apprehension which is quite impossible to express in terms applicable to the objects of intellectual apprehension. It is therefore much better to content ourselves with the words as they stand, and get down to brass tacks about the practical steps to be taken to master these preliminary exercises. It will hardly have escaped the attentive listener that in my previous lectures, I've combined the maximum of discourse with the minimum of information. That is all part of my training as a cabinet minister. But... What does emerge tentatively from my mental fog is that Yama, taking it by long and by large, is most negative in its effects. We are imposing inhibitions on the existing current of energy, just as one compresses a waterfall in turbines in order to control and direct the natural gravitational energy of the stream. It might be as well, before altogether leaving the subject of Yama, To enumerate a few of the practical conclusions which follow from our premise that nothing which might weaken or destroy the beauty and harmony of the mind must be permitted. Social existence of any kind renders any serious yoga absolutely out of the question. Domestic life is completely incompatible with even elementary practices. No doubt many of you will say... That's all very well for him. Let him speak for himself. As for me, I manage my home and my business so that everything runs on ball bearings. Echo answers. Until you actually start the practice of yoga, you cannot possibly imagine what constitutes a disturbance. You, most of you, think that you can sit perfectly still. You tell me what artists and models can do for over 35 minutes. They don't. You don't hear the ticking of the clock. Perhaps you don't even know whether a typewriter is going in the room. For all I know, you could sleep peacefully through an air raid. That has nothing to do with it. As soon as you start the practices, you will find, if you're doing them properly, that you're hearing sounds which you've never heard in your life. You become hypersensitive. And as you have five external batteries bombarding you, you get a little repose. You feel the air on your skin with about the same intensity as you would previously have felt a mist in your face. To some, no doubt, this fact will be familiar to all of you. Probably most of you have been out at some time or another in what is grotesquely known as the Silence of the Night and you will become aware of the infinitesimal movements of light and darkness, of elusive sounds in the quiet. They will have soothed you and pleased you. It will never have occurred to you that these changes could each one be felt as a pang. But even in the earliest months of yoga, this is exactly what happens, and therefore it is best to be prepared by arranging before you start at all that your whole life will be permanently free from all the grosser causes of trouble. The practical problem of Yama is therefore, to a great extent, how shall I settle down to the work? Then, having complied with the theoretically best conditions, you have to tackle each fresh problem as it arises in the best way you can. We are now in a better position to consider the meaning of Niyama, or virtue. To most men, the qualities which constitute niyama are not apprehended at all by their self consciousness. These are positive powers, but they are latent. Their development is not merely measurable in terms of quantity and efficiency. As we rise from the coarse to the fine, from the gross to the subtle, we enter a new and what appears on first sight to be an immeasurable region. It is quite impossible to explain what I mean by this. If I could, you would know it already. How can one explain to a person who has never skated the nature of the pleasure of executing a difficult figure on the ice? He has in himself the whole apparatus ready for use, but experience and experience only can make him aware of the results of such use. At the same time, In a general exposition of yoga, it may be useful to give some idea of the functions on which those peaks that pierce the clouds of the limitations of our intellectual understanding are based. I've found it very useful in all kinds of thinking to employ a sort of abacus. The schematic representation of the universe given by astrology and the Tree of Life is extremely valuable, especially when reinforced and amplified by the Holy Kabbalah. The Tree of Life is susceptible to infinite ramifications, and there is no need in this connection to explore its subtleties. We ought to be able to make a fairly satisfactory diagram for elementary purposes by taking as a basis of our illustration the solar system as conceived by the astrologers. I do not know whether the average student is aware that in practice the significations of the planets are based generally upon the philosophical conceptions of the Greek and Roman gods. Let us hope for the best and go on. The planet Saturn, which represents anatomy, is the skeleton. It is a rigid structure upon which the rest of the body is built. To what moral qualities does this correspond? The first point of virtue in a bone is its rigidity, its resistance to pressure. And so, in niyama, we find that we need the qualities of absolute simplicity in our regimen. We need insensibility, we need endurance, we need patience. It is simply impossible for anyone who has not practiced yoga to understand what boredom means. I have known yogis, men holier than I, no, no, who, to escape from the intolerable tedium, would fly for refuge to a bottle party. It is a psychological tedium which becomes the acutest agony. The tension becomes cramped. Nothing else matters but to escape from the self-imposed constraint. But every evil being brings its own remedy. Another quality of Saturn is melancholy. Saturn represents the sorrow of the universe. It is the trance of sorrow that has determined one to undertake the task of emancipation. This is the energizing force of law. It is the rigidity of the fact that everything is sorrow which moves one to the task and keeps one on the path. The next planet is Jupiter. This planet is in many ways the opposite of Saturn. It represents expansion as Saturn represents contraction. It is the universal love. The selfless love whose object can be no less than the universe itself this comes to reinforce the powers of saturn when they agonize success is not for self but for all one might acquiesce in one's own failure but one cannot be unworthy of the universe jupiter too represents the vital creative genial element of the cosmos He has Ganymede and Hebe to his cupbearers. There is an immense and inaccessible joy in the great work, and it is the attainment Mm. of the trance, of even the intellectual foreshadowing of that trance, joy, which reassures the yogi that his work is worthwhile. Jupiter digests experiences. Jupiter is the lord of the forces of life. Jupiter takes common matter and transmutes it into celestial nourishment. The next planet is Mars. Mars represents the muscular system. It is the lowest form of energy, and in Niyama, it is to be taken quite literally as the virtue which enables one to contend with and to conquer the physical difficulties of the work. The practical point is this. The little more, and how much it is, the less and what world's away. No matter how long you keep water at 99 degrees centigrade under normal barometric pressure, it will not boil. I shall probably be accused of advertising some kind of motor spirit in talking about the little extra something that the others haven't got, but I assure you that I'm not being paid for it. Let us take the example of the pranayama a subject with which I hope to deal in a subsequent lubrication. Let us suppose that you are managing your breath so that your cycle, breathing in, holding, and breathing out, lasts exactly a minute. Now, that's pretty good for most people, but it may be or may not be good enough to get you going. No one can tell you until you've tried long enough, and no one can tell you how long long enough may be, whether that's going to ring the bell. Mm. It may be that if you increase your 60 seconds to 64, the phenomena would begin immediately. That sounds all right, but as you've nearly burst your lungs doing 60, you want this added energy to make the grade. That is only one example of the difficulty which arises with every practice. Mars, moreover, is the flaming energy of passion. It is the male quality in its lowest sense. It is the courage which goes berserk, and I do not mind telling you that, in my own case at least, one of the inhibitions with which I had most frequently to contend Mm -hmm. was the fear that I was going mad. This was especially the case when those phenomena began to occur, which, recorded in cold blood, did seem like madness. The Niyama of Mars is the ruthless rage which jests at scars while dying of one's wounds. The grim lord of Kolonzeh hath turned him on the ground and laughed in death-pang that his blade, the mortal thrust so well repaid. The next of the heavenly bodies is the center of all, the sun. The sun is the heart of the system. He harmonizes all, Energizes all, orders all. His is the courage and energy which is the source of all the other lesser forms of motion, and it is because of this that in himself he is calm. They are planets, he is a star. For him all planets come, around him they all move, to him they all tend. It is this centralization of faculties, their control their motivation, which is the niyama of the sun. He is not only the heart, but the brain of the system. But he's not the thinking brain, for in him all thought has been resolved into the beauty and harmony of ordered motion. The next of the planets is Venus. In her, for the first time, we come into contact with a part of our nature, a part which is nonetheless quintessential because it has hitherto been masked by our preoccupation with more active qualities. Venus resembles Jupiter, but on a lower scale, standing to him very much as Mars does to Saturn. She's close akin in nature to the Sun, and she may be considered an externalization of his influence toward beauty and harmony. Venus is Isis the Great Mother. Venus is nature herself. Venus is the sum of all possibilities. The Niyama corresponding to Venus is one of the most important and one of the most difficult of attainment. I said the sum of all possibilities, and I'll ask you to go back into your minds to what I said before about the definition of the Great Work itself the aim of the yogi to consummate the marriage of all that he is with all that he is not, and ultimately to realize, insofar as the marriage is consummated, that what he is and what he is not are identical. Therefore, we cannot pick and choose in our yoga. It is written in the Book of the Law, chapter 1, verse 22, Let there be no difference made among you between any one thing and any other thing, for thereby there cometh hurt. Venus represents the ecstatic acceptance of all possible experience and the transcendental assumption of all particular experience into the one experience. Oh yes, by the way, don't forget this. In a lesser sense, Venus represents tact. Many of the problems that confront the yogi are impracticable through intellectual manipulation. They yield to graciousness. Our next planet is Mercury, and the Niyama, which correspond to him, are as innumerable and as various as his own qualities. Mercury is the word, the logos in the highest. He is the direct medium of connection between opposites. He is electricity, the very link of life, the yogic process.